0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia.
0: And I'm Shannon Bond.
2: And we are not actually here, Shannon. No, we're not. We're not in the studio (laughs) right now.
0: We are in your ears, however.
2: Uh, We are, yeah. We're we're coming to you, our listeners, from the recent past. Shannon and I are actually in Washington, D.C. right now. We're working on a special election episode, which we are going to be playing for you on Monday, February 29th. So that is something to look forward to. But Shannon, we should talk about the U.S. election, as we so often do, and as I'm positive a lot of our overseas listeners also are interested in. You came across a couple of stories uh, over the weekend that were uh, really interesting and say something about where this election might be headed.
0: Yeah. So I think, you know, there's been a lot of interesting discussion particularly looking at the Democratic primary, about the role of of women voters this time around, Um, not just because you have a female presidential candidate in Hillary Clinton, but also because uh, particularly on the left, there's a lot of a lot of the issues that seem to be resonating both among Bernie Sanders supporters and Hillary Clinton supporters are issues that we've talked about, things like gender pay equality and, you know, Family leave, like issues sort of with the workplace, right? Sure. So there were a couple of pieces this weekend that I thought were, were, be a good read for our listeners and good to discuss. The first one is um, actually an excerpt from a new book by Rebecca Traister. The excerpt's in New York Magazine. It's called The Single American Woman. But it's adapted from her new book, which is All the Single Ladies, Unmarried Women and the Rise of an Independent Nation, which I've not read, but I'm really looking forward to. Um, basically, we're in a moment. She quotes uh, uh, Paige Gardner saying in 2016, potentially for the first time in history, a majority of women voters are projected to be unmarried. Now, there's going to be a question over whether those people actually register to vote. Um, but the proportion of the population that is unmarried um, is at an all-time high due to a lot of things. People are getting married later. But it's also due to a lot of social policies that have changed, uh, you know, in recent decades that are encouraging more women to be in the workforce and that are allowing or sort of have changed the conception of kind of what the, you know, the role of the family, the role of marriage in people's lives. And Tracer's argument is that this group of women represents a, a really powerful force politically at this point, given, just given the high proportion, frankly, among both Democrats and Republicans, of, you're going to see of women who are unmarried.
2: And do we have some sense of how that's uh shaping things uh for each party in other words uh are are women? Voters or likely voters in the case of the primaries, are they going towards one or another of the
0: candidates in either party? Well, it seems one of the interesting splits that's happening on the Democratic side, and you saw this coming out of with the three states that have voted so far, right? So in Iowa, New Hampshire and Nevada, that younger women tend to go for Bernie Sanders and older women tend to go for Hillary Clinton. And there's some interesting theories as to why this is. Gloria Steinem you know, got a lot of flack for essentially saying that women should be voting for Hillary because they're women. But actually kind of buried in that argument, this did not get picked up as much, but she was actually making this broader point that as women get older, they tend to get more radical, whereas as, as men, when men get older, they tend to get more conservative. And her argument is that men tend to accumulate power as they get older, whereas women tend to lose power. And so for older women... It becomes more pressing, sort of, the idea that I'm going to vote for a female candidate. Whereas for younger women, they're drawn to a lot of the issues that both candidates are, you know, talking up and presenting as incredibly important. But you know, for a lot of them are saying, you know, yes, I want a woman pr- president, but it doesn't have to be this woman. And I'm, you know, I'm finding really appealing Bernie Sanders' message of economic injustice. I think on the Republican side, it's a little less clear. In Traster's piece, she talks about if you actually look at the proportion of Uh, in the in the 2012 election, white women split fairly evenly, I believe, between Republicans and Democrats. But unmarried women were more likely to go for Democrats. Okay. So it does there there it there could be you know as a sort of a segment of the voting population, this could be quite a swing one way or the other.
2: Yeah. What's intriguing in particular about what's happening with the Democrats is this idea that young women haven't yet come across all the instances of outright discrimination that they will eventually face in the workplace. And so right now, some of the more overt manifestations of sexism that they've seen maybe have started to dissipate um, but they're going to face much more uh, egregious and difficult uh, instances of discrimination when they get to the workplace and that that is going to be the thing that turns them into the type of uh, voters that uh, would go for Hillary Clinton because maybe she talks about this issue more or because she embraces it or because she – Frankly, embodies it as well because she would, in fact, be a historic figure as the first female president.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we've talked about this before the fact that actually you're seeing, you know, really there's a really positive movement happening for younger college graduates now. You know, men and women are have far more, far less disparity in their pay, right, when they first start off. But that does not track over time. And essentially, as you get older, and for women particularly, you know if, when they get married and when they have children those are both things that are, are likely to lower their pay in relation to their male peers whereas when men get married and have children that actually gives them a bump so you see that kind of that gap widening and exactly as women get older it becomes more apparent to them and that might be one reason that would tip them
2: by the way as an unmarried childless male myself okay that's annoying as well in other words the idea that married men with kids get a bump that's kind of bs right but let's stay on topic here because <laughs>
0: – Well, you know, no. But that is actually – another part of Tracer's argument is what we're seeing actually – like what she's arguing, this is actually a really profound social shift sort of – she says it's as profound in terms of a political rupture as the invention of birth control, the sexual revolution, the abolition of slavery, women's suffrage, and the women's rights, civil rights, gay rights, and labor movements. Mm-hmm. Because she's saying it's it – we've basically constructed a society, particularly you know in the 20th century, the way that – workplace laws happened the way that tax laws were put into place, sort of everything we've done in our society has been structured around the idea of a very traditional family, right, where the man goes to work and the woman stays home and takes care of children. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about the way childcare works. Think about the way the school day is structured. I mean, the assumption is there's going to be someone who can stay home. The assumption for men is that there's somebody who can help them, sort of support them, advance in their careers. You know, I think for a lot of people in 2016, they're looking at that saying, that doesn't have any relation to the way I live my life.
2: Sure. And I guess something that we're just going to have to wait to see is how the evolution of the labor market itself also ends up having an impact on all of these issues. We know that for the last couple of decades, women have been graduating from college at a much higher rate than men. Um, it is likely that in a lot of professions that are going to have jobs growth over the next 10 years or so, and we've seen the projections, healthcare, education, uh, that women outnumber men and they've traditionally been dominant in those fields. And those those are the places where the jobs are going to be created. Uh, so it's going to be absolutely fascinating to see how this plays out. Anyways, thanks for that. That was awesome. A little pre-show segment, which is, I think, Crucially important this time because you and I are basically disappearing into the void for the rest of the episode. Yeah, we're done. We're done. (laughs) But stick around anyways because we actually have two awesome conversations uh, that we have already recorded that we're going to play. One of them is Brang Spanking New, the other of which you can listen to on our sister podcast, Alpha Chatterbox. Let's get right to it. First up on the show, another John author special. John, of course, is the senior investment commentator here at the FT. And he recently sat down with the author and hedge fund manager, Jeff Graham, to talk about the rise of shareholder activism in public companies from the early part of the last century to now. That's the subject of Jeff's new book called Dear Chairman. And the two of them discuss some of the biggest boardroom battles in the history of public companies from the proxiteers of the 1950s to the corporate raiders of the 1980s to the hedge fund activists of today. And then after, we're going to play a clip of my conversation with Clay Shirky and Emily Parker about the Chinese company Xiaomi. This was part of a long conversation about Chinese technology and information flows and the Chinese economy that I had with the two of them, and which you can listen to in full on Alpha Chatterbox. But first up, here is John Authors and Jeff Graham.
3: Jeff Graham, I have to to tell you that you really can read this new book of yours, Dear Chairman, Like an airport novel, I can say that because I did actually read it from cover to cover in a plane, not Hmm. so not so long ago. Well, I
1: wrote a fair bit of that book on a plane,
3: really. So well done. Now, it obviously holds together, even though it's a series of episodes. You can almost say it's almost like a Jane Austen epistolary novel, in that we have all these wonderful letters that different people have written to uh, to uh, chairmen of uh, of company boards over the years. Could I just start by asking you? It's 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 an episodic history. What what were the main things you've learned from this? What inspired you to try to look at the history of corporate activism and what did you mainly learn?
1: Yeah, I mean, the inspiration was, I mean, I had all these letters. Um, I kind of have been collecting them. At first, I just thought I would uh, collect them into kind of a reference manual. And then as I thought about that as hmm. a real project, that just seemed extremely boring and kind of pointless. And so I decided to try to write... A more of a narrative history. And so it turned into kind of a history of shareholder activism that basically is a history of how public companies work. Right. And so um, I knew about activism. I knew about a, a, a corporate governance and the, the shortcomings of corporate governance. But I didn't uh, really know how we got to now, the history of the public company, uh, why shareholder activism, mm-hmm. you know, uh, bloomed and faded at particular times, and so I feel like the main thing I learned was that the big thing that changed over time was the nature of the passive shareholders behind the scenes that cast all these votes that okay. de- you know that determine these
3: outcomes. So back in the twenties, it was a few friends of the people who ran the company anyway, the the very powerful people that JP, you know, the original J.P. Morgan and his ilk
4: mm-hmm. brought
3: together, then. By now, we're talking about huge institutions, many of which are passive, and you're talking about the the steady change in the nature of the institutions who actually held the uh, held the companies.
1: Exactly. So, the first case in the book is uh, Benjamin Graham uh, runs a campaign against the Northern Pipeline Company, and, and that's a in, letter to John D.
3: Rockefeller, and he does write people.
1: a letter to the Rockefellers. And so that was in the 1920s. In the 1920s, except for the biggest uh, companies, which were the, the railroad companies, mm. public companies uh, tended to, uh, to have a concentrated uh, shareholder base of individual shareholders. And they tended to be a strategic owner or a minority partner. You know, but they tended to be people that, that had some history with the company and some intimate knowledge. Uh, mm-hmm. By the 1950s, yeah. the ownership in, in public companies um, had greatly diffused. And any a decent-sized public company usually had a big shareholder base of individual shareholders,
3: and yeah, the, these are these are poorer guys. This isn't necessarily the era of Fidelity and Schwab yet, but these this isn't the plutocratically rich people who held all the yes. stock back in the twenties. Yeah. So
1: only beginning in the '60s did you see the reconcentration of share ownership into the hands of these the fiduciary investors, pension funds, the mutual funds, and so. The change in the nature of that shareholder base had a lot of influence on how activism works, who could get into these companies, and how to intervene. And a lot of the the, the history that I wrote about uh, was
3: influenced by that dynamic. Okay. Now, there are three main waves of activism. There's uh, an, an era that I knew little or nothing about uh, of the proxy tiers. Mm-hmm. Then in the 80s, we have the Michael Douglas, Gordon Gecko, suspenders <laughs> and Filofax's uh, era of the the Corporate Raiders.
1: I call it the Michael J. Fox. And the well, Michael J. Fox. Yeah, that <laughs> that, that works of my too. success. <laughs> uh,
3: that works too. And then very much more recently, we have the uh, Bill Ackman, Einhorn, Daniel Loeb era of a very different, more attitudinal kind of activism. Can you take us through what was the difference in strategy? What was the difference in the environment that, that made these different movements, these different waves of activism possible?
1: Sure, sure. Uh, so you had these three groups, the Proxy Tears in the 50s, the corporate raiders in the '80s and the hedge fund activists that yeah. that, that that we see uh, today—you know—they basically at at their root they're all the same. They're all you know economic actors out to make a buck. Right. And so in in the 1950s, the proxy tiers, what they usually did is because of the diffuse um, ownership of these public companies, uh, the way that they would get onto the board is by running a proxy fight. You know, which is essentially a campaign to win votes to get you elected to a board. And because the holders of those votes tended to be individual investors or very uh, small fiduciary investors, they would run these highly orchestrated PR campaigns to win your vote. And so the result of that is, you know, they were very populist. They were very fun. They had these uh, dramatic campaigns to win control. Now, by the 1980s, it was a very different right. uh, shareholder base. They, they weren't
3: actually trying to buy the stock. They were trying to win votes. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they bought stock,
1: that is great because it secured those votes, but, but they didn't have that kind of money. Right. So by the 1980s, uh, not only had the shareholder bases uh, uh, concentrated in, into very few hands, but you also had availability of money, and that came from Michael Milken. Right. And so the, the tactics of the 80s were you line up your financing, and you make a hostile bid, and if you can do it quickly, it gives the company very little time to to prepare and to play defense.
3: Now, how important were the actual letters that they wrote? I mean, you've you've quoted some wonderful stuff from Carl Icahn mm-hmm. in here. How how important was it to win hearts and minds rather than simply to 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 win the bottom line by by offering more money at that? Yeah, at that's that point? right. I
1: mean, in the 1950s, you had to reason in your letter. In the 1980s, you're like, please respond by Thursday. Or you are toast. <laughs> and so in the eighties, you know, they had the money to to do these deals, and so the the letters were much more, you know, here's what's going to happen. You need to uh, to decide if you're going to say yes, and I give you a forty eight hours. That's the way that
3: those read. Right. Well, you you quote Carly Kahn's letter to to Phillips Petroleum, which the the idea of what would have gone through the uh, the heart and mind of somebody on receiving. On receiving this thing, Drexel is highly confident it can arrange the necessary financing by February the twenty first. Assume it can begin its financing efforts no later than the close of business on the February the sixth. My offer is not subject to due diligence. It's just <laughs> yeah, here's the money, it's happening. Now I need to hear from you in forty eight hours. Mm-hmm. Now, how do we differ from that and the, the current era of uh, of Loeb and Einhorn and Ackman? They don't have that fount of paper money from uh, Michael Milken anymore.
1: Yeah, there's no more Milken. Ownership has concentrated even more. Uh, uh companies are larger too. And mm. so if you're Bill Ackman now and you're going into into Target, then you need to convince uh Calpers and Calsters, the big pension funds that like that you have the the right ideas to to uh, to move this company forward. And so it's a very different dynamic. It's uh it's persuasion but a sophisticated persuasion. Uh, you're not going to hundreds and thousands of shareholders in the way that Robert R. Young did in, in the 1950s. If you're Bill Ackman, then you're going to 30 big institutions and well, trying and to C- convince CNBC them that you're is right you to meet meet them as well. Yeah, exactly.
3: Now let's talk about some of the individual cases because sure. a lot of these really would work very well in a soap opera or Downton Abbey or wherever. Let's start with Carla. Carla Scherer. Sure, Carla Scherer. Let's tell us, tell us the story of uh, Carla Scherer and her father's company.
1: Okay, so, uh, so Carla Scherer uh, was the daughter of, of the founder of a company called R.P. Scherer, and they made gel caps, pills. Carla was, uh, by the 1980s, the largest uh, shareholder in uh, the company, but also the wife of the CEO. And after a few years of seeing the performance at the company decline, she began to have this uh, this notion of, is anybody on top of that situation? I have a lot of my uh, net worth uh, tied up in this company. It's not liquid. And is my husband, uh, Peter, really the right guy to be running it?
3: Right. Fairly uncomfortable thoughts to be having about your husbands, presumably. Now, now, who was on the board, though? I mean, as I understand it, it's largely a lineup of his best friends. Sure. It's a reputable board, and
1: and to be clear, It's a board of of accomplished uh, Detroit businessmen, but Carla knew that that they were all of Peter's buddies. They were all at the at the same country club, and so the first yes, oh yeah, literally. And so the first thing that she did is uh, she got herself on the board. Uh, She went to Peter and said, "Look, all of my net worth is uh, tied up in this uh, company. I would like to know what's going on." And so she gets herself on the board, which is. I would love to know exactly the worst how nightmare. that conversation
3: happens but yes, right. <laughs>
1: I think that nobody really wants their spouse to be there mm. at their office all the time, right? And so she does get on the board and and within a few years she determines like look, this company is not very well run. It's in everyone's interest to sell it, especially my interest and the shareholders' interests. And so she decided to run a proxy fight uh, to overhaul the board, to fire Peter as the CEO and to put the company up for sale.
3: Now, she had a staggered board to contend with, mm-hmm. and she obviously had a very difficult PR situation in that you, you don't need to overhype this to make, make her sound like Joan Colling in, in Dynasty or, or whatever.
1: Exactly. I mean, the corporate defenses focused on her estrangement from Peter. It talked about how her lawyer for the proxy fight is her divorce lawyer, uh, things like that. Like They tried to paint her as kind of a scorned, irrational wife. And in the letter like that she writes in the book, uh, she focuses on the key issues of, of here are the, are the profits that you have made as the shareholders. Here are the dividends that the company um, has paid, but here is what they have paid themselves. And so
3: she won the proxy fight. Now, what's interesting is that it turns out that she was proved completely accurate, right? They, yeah. they had over-diversified, gone away from gel caps, and as soon as they adopted the kind of policy, she was looking at the value what, doubled?
1: Yeah, well, uh, they sold the, the company for more than a, uh, than a double from uh, the price of, of when she joined the board. Uh, but also, um, uh, you did see tremendous success for the people who bought the company. And they sold all of the non-core businesses. They focused on on the core business and, and had uh, tremendous success. And that's uh, kind of the hard part about that lesson, is a lot of value got uh, created for the owners of, of that business. But at that point in time, it had already been sold. Uh, the owners were not the original shareholders. And so Carla, she did well by the original shareholders. She got them a fair price. But the bonanza outcome happened after the company was sold. And you have to ask yourself, why is that the case? You know, Could she have done this uh, turnaround on her own as a public company? And I think that the answer is that she couldn't have. That the, like the shareholders only tolerated her leading this uh, revolt.
3: They weren't going to trust her to actually exactly. run it just because it was her dad who'd set it up. And exactly. Set up the original patents.
1: Yeah, like the reason that she won was the promise to sell the company.
3: Now, let's move on to one of the highest profile battles you have here in terms of both the adversaries were, were very big, which is uh, Ross Perot's time on the board of General Motors. Sure. And what's fascinating about this is that uh, Ross Perot, in my opinion, comes over very well the way you've um, mm-hmm. written him up in this uh episode um but he essentially uh accepts something akin to blackmail or a ransom or something like that from uh from gm to leave the board mm-hmm. how did this situation arise and how could it ever be allowed to happen again
1: sure so it's the mid-1980s and at this point in time uh gm is they they're doing okay, but there are troubles on the horizon. And they're
3: already in decline compared to yeah. when they were the greatest company. In the the Japanese
1: um, have been having a lot of success. Uh, Toyota has uh, the Accord and the Civic have been on the market for for eight or nine years. And uh, GM decides that the, you know they need to overhaul uh, their technology and their culture. And so the CEO and chairman of uh, Roger Smith decided to buy Ross Perot's EDS. Now, Ross Perot at this point in time is a is a business a superstar. He is um, is larger than life. Um, he's known for his intensity and the the, the corporate culture at EDS. And so, uh, Roger Smith brings him into to GM with the idea of infusing uh, GM with uh, the Perot can do. And as a part of their deal, uh, Perot gets on the board. He tells Roger Smith uh, that I'm going to be an active board member, and I hope that you're okay with that. And Smith accepts him with open arms, and they very uh, quickly uh, descend um, into a pretty uh, bitter feud. Because Perot, he saw all the things that GM was doing wrong, and and he began to to call Roger Smith out on it. And uh, he, and and he pulls no punches; is the
3: way he operates. No, that's certainly true. Now, I, I think it's worth quoting some of um, what Ross Perot says in his letter to. Roger Smith, because what's very interesting, although this is already the only the 80s, he's already, it seems to me, writing in PowerPoint. Yeah,
1: it's our bullet points.
3: <laughs> yes, during the recent meeting in Detroit, this is this is Perot. You were blob, obviously bored. Blob, barely tolerated what that said. Blob, your attitude and comments stifled opens communication. And then he goes on. You need to understand that. Bang, your style intimidates people. Blank, you're losing your temper. Hurts GM. Bang, your tendency to try to run over anyone who disagrees with you hurts your effectiveness within GM. And there's another four bullet points after that. Mm -hmm. So perhaps we can understand why Roger Smith wanted him off the board.
1: It's a brilliant letter. It's not just that he uh, challenges uh, Smith's um, autocratic style. He also challenges the strategy, and history clearly proved him right. So uh, Smith quickly decided that he had to get Perot off the board, and so they ended up uh, buying out Perot's uh, shares. It cost them three-quarters of a billion dollars. And as a part of that deal, Perot left the board. And So uh, they paid
3: three-quarters of a billion dollars of General Motors' shareholders' money to remove somebody from the board.
1: Sure. Although Perot did own shares. like They did uh, retire those uh, shares as a part of the deal. But it was a big expenditure to move the, the most independent and probably the best board member off the board. So so the shareholders completely freaked out and and that was a major turning point I think in the history of public company governance. It was an interesting time to be a passive shareholder. So this was the late 1980s now. And mm-hmm. if you're a, a a big pension fund, not only have you witnessed this horrible decline in GM, um you have been there for the era of the corporate raiders and so right. you, you know you're seeing uh green mail you're seeing like these hostile uh, two-tier takeovers all these things are are happening to enrich others at your expense if it's a green mail then the company is squandering their money to just to keep out the raiders. Or at times the raiders are um, are getting uh, good deals on these extremely quick hostile buyouts, and so the shareholders uh, feel extremely disenfranchised. They don't know exactly um, how to fix these problems, and then Ross Perot
3: and General Motors happens, and that uh, pushed everyone over the edge. Let's now move on to just the two cases that uh, capture the current day. Um, One is Daniel. Daniel Loeb, mm-hmm. who you, you cited here, and the other is BKF Capital. One thing that's very interesting about Loeb's approach is that it seems to be uh, quite startlingly uh, personal. He uh, uh, reveals in this letter, when he's absolutely roasting the CEO, uh, he reveals in the last paragraph that he actually knows this guy well. So, I have known you personally, this is, this is Daniel Loeb speaking, for many years, and that's what I'm about to say may seem harsh, but is said with some authority it is time for you to step down from your role as CEO and director so that you can do what you do best. Retreat to your waterfront mansion in the Hamptons where you can play tennis and hobnob with your fellow socialites. Sincerely, Daniel S. Loeb. Is it, is it really necessary to be quite that personal? <laughs> and how did we get to a point where this kind of invective came into uh, what should be a rational discussion about uh, allocating capital? Sure.
1: Well, that was uh, kind of the beginning of the hedge fund activism period so that is not the kind of act uh, of activism that that you see today an interesting thing what's happening there like you had this emergence of of young hedge fund managers uh, they didn't have access to to capital they didn't have a lot of influence with the big institutions and so how are they going to get the ceo or chairman of a company to mind their business uh, how can they hold them accountable right. and so uh, they resorted to public shamings, and you had a lot of these angry 13 D letters, uh, Dan Loeb did not have the power to get um, Eric uh, Seven a fire. That was an MLP because of, this, of the structure. It was hard to replace Eric, so he publicly shamed him, and you saw this a lot and and the reason that, you know, that you don't see that now is uh, the big institutions have figured out, oh, you know these, these hedge fund guys are doing the dirty work, and I kind of agree with a lot of what they're mm-hmm. saying. And so now if you're Dan Loeb and you're mad at a management team, you don't have to call out their mother or, or tell them that they need to go back to the Hamptons. Right. He
3: can go explain his, his case to the three biggest uh, shareholders and, and they're going to listen to him. Finally, sometimes activism goes wrong. Mm-hmm. J.C. Penney and Bill Ackman is a, is a recent example. The fascinating example you mentioned in the book is BKF Capital, which mm-hmm. is this very strange entity of a, a hedge fund held within a public company.
1: What went wrong there? Well, it's an interesting case. It was a money manager, a, a value money manager that also owned a bunch of hedge funds. At that time, hedge funds, it was at kind of the dawn of the industry that, you know, mm. there was explosive growth ahead. They had a very profitable fee structure. And if anyone understood that to be the case, it was a bunch of of other hedge fund investors. And so what happened is you had a group of hedge funds that decided to go after BKF capital. And their complaint was that BKF was overpaying its employees, mm. uh, that you know they brought in $100 million of fees, but a lot of that capital went back to the employees. So it's a little bit of an ironical complaint. From some like from, right? Yeah, well, from other hedge fund managers that also pay themselves the same way. But uh, what ultimately happened is uh, the activists, uh, led by Steel Partners, uh, 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 they ran a proxy fight. They overwhelmingly won. They basically took control of the board. They forced out John Levin, the founder and the manager yeah. of BKF. And within 18 months, all of the assets at, at, at BKF had walked out the In door. In other up. words,
3: all the fund managers, now that they were no longer being paid so well, yeah. just left to set up their own hedge funds. And, and not set, just their clients the
1: them. fund managers, but the clients also. All of the customers left, all the managers left the stock essentially went to zero in less than 2 years
3: so an activist does need to have some kind of a grasp of being a, a management consultant of the actual business and of human psychology i guess as well yeah rather well, than just the straightforward finances
1: it's a hard situation and i think there are some nuances there i mean they did uh, the activists essentially destroyed the company but,
3: but? you know the, <laughs>
1: you know but they could have tr- you know there was a potential a good outcome for John Levin and the activists if they had succeeded in working together. I mean, it's interesting. If you look at the, at, at the success uh, that Levin has had uh, since he left BKF, mm. if they had been able to retain that into BKF, it could have been great for everyone, and it didn't work. I think the the feelings were too hard, and they were all angry at each other,
3: and, and it all fell apart. Is that why there might be more of an air of civility about corporate activism now compared to the... Uh these gloriously, uh, your pork stinks, I seem to recall, was one of the things they, uh, they said against Levin 10 years ago, that, that compared to the, the, uh, the, the gratuitous insults that you no, see in some of the letters from 10 years ago.
1: I don't think that we have uh, matured or, or changed. I think that the dynamic is in the passive shareholders that, that hold the votes. I think that now the big institutions uh, uh, cooperate with um, hedge funds a lot more, and so shame is unnecessary. It doesn't really work, and it is counterproductive because you ultimately have to work with you know your foes
3: but ultimately the the power in the land these days is with those big institutions, many of whom are avowedly passive, but yeah. ultimately those are the guys that uh, that run capitalism these days
1: It's an interesting dynamic uh, you have a lot of activism happening mm. people talk a lot about you know guys like uh, Bill Ackman as the ringleaders, but really uh, these 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 big institutions are, um, are complicit, and they, they play the most important role.
3: Jeff, thank you very much indeed.
1: Uh, thank you so much for having me. Hey,
2: everybody. It's Cardiff again. Thanks to John for hosting that interview for us. And now you're going to hear a brief clip of my conversation with Emily Parker and Clay Shirky. We're going to talk about the rise, the origins of the Chinese smartphone maker Xiaomi. It's really fascinating, and it was part of a longer conversation that I had with Emily and Clay about technology in China, information flows, censorship, and all kinds of other issues. You can listen to that whole conversation on our sister podcast, Alpha Chatterbox. But For now, here is Clay Shirky on Xiaomi.
4: I'll, I'll tell the story as it happened to me because this is the thing that originally got me interested in Xiaomi. Uh, I was here in, in 2013 doing some work for NYU. We've opened a, a campus here where I now teach. But I was sort of doing some advanced work. Um, I needed a mobile phone. I had gotten lost in a mall. There was a place that had this nice looking black phone. I was like, okay, I'll take that one, whatever. you know, Put a SIM card in it, go back to campus. Every time I took that phone out of my pocket to do something... One of the Chinese kids would say to me, where did you get that? They didn't ask what kind of phone is that? They all recognized it. They said, where did you get it? And I said, well, I bought it at a store. And they said, that phone is sold out in all of China. Xiaomi had, had, with the Mi 3, the phone I had gotten, had gotten the industrial design operating system quality cost triangle so right that it had become the sort of common desiderata of teenagers across China and they had sold out they couldn't keep up with the manu- with the with the demand from China and I thought this is new right this is a phone where the industrial design comes from China it speaks to the chinese they would speak of Lei Jun, the founder in the same way that kids in the states speak of steve jobs so i just started following the company and the surprise turns out to be that although Xiaomi is quite a quite a capable industrial design firm, their real innovations are in the marketing and design and supply chain, not in the manufacturing and industrial design. So when I when I looked into the company and discovered they'd only been founded in twenty ten, right? They just they were just when I when I came across them just in their sort of fourth year of existence. Um, they bet the farm on that company three different ways right at their founding. They bet on open source, which is to say they were an, they're an, it's an Android phone, but they bet that they could invest in making the operating system better um, and make an Android experience that was really worth comparing to the iPhone. They bet on e-commerce. They only sell the phone online. If you buy it in stores, it's because someone's bought it off them and is reselling it. They don't, do the, they don't take the inventory risk. They don't take inventory back. When a phone leaves the warehouse from Xiaomi, it has been sold. So they have this incredible visibility and containment across their entire delivery cycle. Um, and then they bet on social media. The, all of their marketing is social media. Um, They use social media to market their operating system upgrades. They use social media to to market their new hardware. They get users to talk to each other on social media. Um, They don't buy bus wraps. They don't buy billboards. They don't buy TV ads. Their marketing department has a software budget for writing software to help them manage their fans on social media. So you see these three big bets, you know, open source, e-commerce, social media, had any one of those failed, Xiaomi would have been a middling success story. They would have made a phone and some people would have bought it and they'd have made some money. But all three of those things played out well. They played out as, as they had imagined. And I think something Americans often miss because of the sort of Apple centricity of our current ideal of innovation is that innovation can happen Anywhere in a business, it doesn't just have to happen in the way the handset looks and works. And Xiaomi has actually innovated around the business process, how they make the phones, how they fund the phones, how they sell the phones, how they improve the phones. And that matters so much more than the look and feel of the phone itself. They've got that right, but what they've really changed is how you are a manufacturing company in the 21st century. Um, and in a way I allude to this in the book, you know, 2014 was the best year Xiaomi will ever have because it was the last year anybody underestimated them consistently through their first five years. People, people were saying, oh, they're doing a new operating system, but they're just going to have to sell it to Motorola or, uh, they've launched a phone, but only people in, in big rich coastal cities will ever buy it. That'll never play in the Chinese heartland. And just over and over again, people assumed that they were going to fail while they were on their way to becoming the most valuable startup in the world. Uh, By the end of 2014, they had so terrified everybody else, including unseating Samsung in the, the world's largest mobile phone market, that you've now got all these companies copying not Apple, but Xiaomi. Huawei, who's the big electronics manufacturer, has a new line of phones where they've copied Xiaomi. Uh, there are new companies that have started up, OnePlus and Meizu, that are basically Xiaomi clones, ironically. Um, there's companies like Vivo and Oppo that have changed their line. These are all Chinese phone companies. They were all in that kind of middle market of... Their phones were fine. Um, They were much cheaper than Samsung, but they weren't particularly well-designed or sexy or jazzy or anything like that. And now that's all changed. And so Xiaomi is now, unfortunately for them, competing in the world that they've made because they've become the company to learn from and the company to beat. And in fact, they just released their their end-of-year results and they missed their targets, in part because the Chinese economy is soft, but also in part because they've shown everyone else how it's done. And I think that that, in a way, that's that's going to be Xiaomi's legacy as much as their phones, which is they've just changed the dynamics of the mobile phone market, especially in China.
2: But something else they did differently from Apple was that Xiaomi started as a software company, right? It got into hardware later. That has, I think, profound implications for the company, but it also might signal something about the way that business is going to be done, especially for manufacturers In the future. Can you talk about that for a little while?
4: Yeah, well, so it's exactly as you say. What they figured out was that for mobile phones, once Apple had set the model of it's a slab of black glass, you drag your finger over it to get stuff done, there's been very little innovation. The cases get thinner, screens get bigger, but really a rectangle of touch sensitive glass has been the phone since 2007. So what Xiaomi realized was the the, for sufficiently complicated hardware, the interface is the user experience. And they spent their first year and a half not even building and selling a phone, just making an operating system that ran well on other people's phones. So their earliest users would download the Xiaomi operating system. It's called MIUI. They would download MIUI and they would install it on their Samsung phone. And Xiaomi optimized their operating system to make Samsung's run better than when they were running Samsung software. And in particular, battery life improved. All phone manufacturers, when it comes time to designing the operating system, always assume users want more features and snappier performance and are perfectly willing to have to recharge every four hours. Which, of course, for the actual owners of phones, is just a horrific user experience. Xiaomi, because they're so attuned to the customer, said, if we can make an operating system that makes battery life better, people will throw away the operating system that came with their phone and install this. And they did that for a year before they shipped any hardware. Uh, And so by the time the Mi 1 came along, their first actual phone, which is fall of 2011... They'd already had a year of understanding what the users wanted. And I think that software-first, hardware-later design model for a manufacturer, that's coming to appliances, that's coming to, you know, to, to, to sort of dashboard parts of vehicles. Once you separate the software and hardware layers, which is what computers do, The amount of innovation, the clock speed for innovation on the software side is much faster than the clock speed on the hardware side. And as you said, this is a model for manufacturing that I think recognizes that these devices are not only digital, but in many ways they are digital first. The customer's experience of them is around the software piece more than the hardware piece. You know, the, the, the amount of innovation that's going on right now in car dashboards is sort of similar to this. Once you've got the amount of screen real estate these cars have, you've got companies that are setting up saying, we're an automotive company that doesn't produce anything physical. And I think Xiaomi is the company that's shown how you get into the manufacturing chain with that emphasis on the user experience at the interface level rather than at the hardware level.
2: everybody. It is Cardiff again. I'm here with Shannon, and we're not going to do a follow-up segment with Amelia Mahasik, but she'll be back next week. Uh, but we are going to give you a couple of our own long-form recommendations. Shannon, what do you got?
0: So mine is in keeping with our conversation from the top of the show. Um, it's a book I read last summer called Spinster by Kate Bollock. She'd written, written an article for The Atlantic um, that this book sort of grew out of. It's really fascinating. It's a book sort of about her own personal sort of life as an independent woman before getting married. She got married a bit later than historically, the historical average. Um, and it's also it's sort of combined with a biography of several other women along the way, um, including Edith Wharton and Edna St. Vincent Millay and uh, Maeve Brennan, among others. And just a really interesting sort of meditation on what it means to live an independent life and the way we are that sort of chafes against but it can also be permitted by our society. Sounds excellent. What about you, Cardiff?
2: I have a book recommendation that's meant to make everybody feel better. Okay. It's called The Upside of Down. It's by Charles Kenny. He's a development economist. And I'm going to be talking to him later this week for an Alpha Chatterbox episode. But his book is about all the ways in which the world is very likely to get better in the near future. So, over the next few decades. And it's a kind of antidote, I think, to the isolationist and nativist, and to some extent, the populist sentiment that seems to be sweeping certainly the developed world now, and which is, I think, accompanied by no small amount of defeatism. This book is about why the rise of all the other parts of the world that we don't spend enough time thinking about, East Asia, developing economies, Africa, why that process is both going to continue and why it's going to be really good for the rest of us here still in the in the West, okay? So it's going to have a redounding effect. It's going to be beneficial, and the world is still going to keep getting better. That's a relief. It is indeed, but we have got to get going. Again, everybody, we are going to have a special U.S. election episode of Alpha Chat on Monday, February 29th. Definitely download our podcast. It's the day before Super Tuesday, which is when we're going to find out the winners of a number of different states' primaries Uh, in the race for president here in the U.S. But Shannon, I think you've got a lot of uh, messages for our listeners before we formally close the show out. Get us going.
0: All right. Please give us a call and let us know what you think of the show, what you'd like us to talk about. You can leave a voicemail at 917-551-5012, or you can send us an email or record a voice memo and send it to alphachat at ft.com. We're on Twitter. I'm at Shannon Parai, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L. And Cardiff is at Cardiff Garcia. Also, if you want to help us out, we'd really love it if you could go on iTunes, give the show a rating and leave us a review. You can let us know what you think there as well.
2: Indeed. And despite all of our talk about the U.S. election, the truth is that the only voting block that matters to me and Shannon is from the Canadian Amy Keene, who does such an amazing job of producing and editing this podcast every week. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We will see you here on Monday, February 29th for a special U.S. election episode of Alpha Chat.